always a joy to be able to gather and to celebrate God's goodness and his faithfulness, but it's always a particular joy in the season of Advent to come together and to focus once again on the things that are the most important. Advent um, means the arrival or the coming of a notable person or event. That's what we are here celebrating. That is what the church historically, like if you've ever looked at a liturgical calendar, the reason that they mark out the season of Advent is to intentionally remember and think about the things that are the most important to us. Because um, something that the early church and the ancient church was really good at and they understood is that the most important things are the first things that we begin to take for granted, right? The things that are the most important are the things that usually lose their sense of awe. They're the things that we lose our sense of wonder over. So we must build into our time and into our schedules intentional time to reflect, to marvel, to worship, to adore, to think about first things first so that everything else falls into place. That's what Advent is all about. Advent is this beautiful season that's filled with longing and waiting and anticipation. Um, and my, um, just my thought for this morning is that the anticipation should not be limited to kids, you know, that are under the tree already trying to shake gifts and see what's inside of them. That's not what Advent is primarily about. It is for us as the people of God to reflect and to think and to stand in awe of all that God has done for us by sending Jesus Christ in the flesh for our sins, in our place, as our representative, as our substitute, as our rescuer, so that we are filled with joy. So for the next several weeks, we're going to think about very intentionally what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. We're going to spend the next three weeks in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, and we're going to see Jesus as Savior. And we're going to see, in the words of J.R.R. Tolkien, where everything sad comes untrue. That's what we're going to unpack in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. Now, Tim Keller has a new Christmas book called Hidden Christmas, and he helps us to think rightly about the incarnation or God taking on flesh. He quotes J.I. Packer, and then he makes some further comments, and I want to read them to you. J.I. Packer says, God became man. The divine Son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth As a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught just like any other child. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. So this is greater than fiction. Then Tim Keller later in the book, reflecting on the same idea says, unless you've heard the Christian message at some point and found it incredible too, I'm not sure you've ever really grasped it. So Advent is about grasping something that's mind-blowing and Um, He goes on to say, Christianity may have never been unfamiliar to you, but if you have never stood 
and looked at the gospel and found it ridiculous, impossible, inconceivable, I don't think you've ever really understood. So this is about us very intentionally slowing down on what in the South could seem like your birthright, hearing the gospel story and allow it to blow all of our categories once again. This is about us thinking very intentionally and very specifically about why God came into the world and seeing its implications fleshed out, not only in our own hearts, not only in the songs that we sing, but for our city. So over the next several weeks, we're going to be able to unpack this and to see that this message really does change everything. That this is the message that God set aside from the foundation of the world to change us. The incarnation is, and and this is the the major thought that I want you to have in John chapter 1 as we look at it. It's the grid through which we're meant to see everything. It's only through the incarnation, God becoming flesh, that we can make sense of our lives, our own stories, how we view ourselves, and the way that we view our world, right? If you've ever been perplexed, or if you've ever been confused by your own story, or the things that you see going on in the world, the incarnation is the answer to that confusion. And that's what we're going to look at in John chapter 1. And what's so amazing about this story is that God himself inserts himself into the narrative. That God not only tells the story and writes the story, he becomes part of the story for people like you and I so that we would know life, so that we would know joy, so that we would experience rescue. So my prayer is that God would collectively open our eyes to see the beauty and the majesty and the mystery of the incarnation. That this wouldn't just be something that we look at in a a perfunctory way and go away unchanged, but that we would marvel, that we would be transformed as we see Jesus once again. That the same God that took on flesh to dwell with us, dwells with us now. That he's actively present in this room at this moment to reveal his saving grace to all of us so that we marvel. And that's what we're going to look at in John chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles open, would you stand with me as we read John chapter 1. We're going to read the first five verses and then verse 14. John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me?
Father, now so much so we want to peer once again into the mystery. We want to stand with a sense of holy awe and reverence that you would enter into our stories. We don't want to have a mere academic exercise or a mere retelling of the story. We actually want to see you and have it change our story and the story of everyone that we come in contact with. So I pray that you would open our eyes to see beautiful things in your word. I pray that you would send your spirit to help us to see Jesus, who is the point of all of life. I pray that you would help to comfort us and to instruct us and to rejoice our hearts in the fact that you loved us so much that you came into the world. To do that, I need your help. I declare my dependence on you. I know apart from you, I can do nothing. But I also know your commitment to your word and your commitment to your people. So I respond in faith because of your great love for us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. So John chapter 1. What we're going to see, and this is the first point we're going to look at this morning, is that our story... And God's story meets in the incarnation. God's story and our story meet in the incarnation. This is the way that we're meant to view ourselves. This is the way that we're meant to interpret our stories. This is the way that we're meant to see God and interpret all of life is through the lens of the incarnation. Now, the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John, like if you are just looking at that, that's the introduction to the book. And like any great book and any great author, there's like this section that's called the preface. If you guys ever skipped over that like me. Right? I do that. Every book I read, I skip over that. But there's some really important things that the author of a particular book puts in the preface and in the introduction because they're things that you need to know about the rest of the book. So in the first 18 verses of John chapter 1, you're going to pick up on all the major themes of John's gospel. So um, over the next three weeks, we're going to unpack these 18 verses, and it's going to take us all over John's gospel. And my prayer is that that by unpacking this, that the incarnation would add color and texture and depth to our worship, to the reason that we sing, that it would fill us with joy as we interact with people on the street, that it would fill us with joy as we interact with friends and family members, and we're all like in weird situations that we're not usually in, that the light of the incarnation would actually shine light on us so that Jesus is made known and made visible. Now, John's gospel probably is the most loved of all the gospels. I don't know who started this, but um, it's usually like the first thing that people say, hey, if you become a Christian or you're trying to explore the Christian faith, you should read the gospel of John. Uh, If I knew who to quote, I would quote that person. Um, I don't know who said that, but I know why they said it. Because the reason that the gospel of John is in the scriptures is to help us to believe in Jesus, to actually have real faith that changes our real lives right where we are. It's evangelistic in nature. But oftentimes, like when we look at the gospel of John, we don't consider the context and who it was actually written to. Yes, it's meant to help us to believe, but it's to help us to believe in a particular way. This book is written to a group of people. It's written to the Jewish people who had lost everything. It was written to a group of people who in AD 70 saw their worlds ripped apart. 
It was written to a group of people who saw the destruction of the temple by the hands of the Romans. There were countless citizens, men, women, and children stacked so high in the temple were bodies that people didn't know if the Jewish people would actually survive. It says that in, in the Gospels that, that not one stone was going to be left on top of one another. They actually experienced that as a people. So what was at the center of the, their life, the temple, the festivals that they celebrated for the Jewish people, they were saying, what in the world do we do now? Like, what do we do with this gigantic hole that exists in our life and in our story? How do we begin to make sense of all of the devastation and all of the destruction? It's into that context that the Gospel of John is written to make sense of situations that don't make sense of us. That's the kind of belief that it's meant to bring to us. So the only thing that I can even remotely compare it to is like if you um, have at least seen video footage of the devastation of 9-11. You can imagine um, the survivors of 9-11 that were from um, the Lehman Brothers and Merrill Lynch. And they're trying to come back to work and they're trying to pick up all of the pieces and all of the pieces of paper that were floating through the air. And they're saying, what in the world are we supposed to do with all of this? That's what the Gospel of John is about. That is what the first 18 verses are meant to bring us into that kind of tension. But because um, all you have to do is live long enough and you will experience moments like that. Moments that don't make sense. Moments where there is a hole in your experience and you're going to say, how do we go forward from here? God's answer to how we go forward is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Advent is about making sense of what doesn't make sense in our life. It's about seeing our lives and our stories in light of God's stories. God coming down into the mess, into the devastation, into the destruction to help us to understand. So with those things being said, let's look once again at verses 1 through 3. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In the beginning. Those words have special meaning to a Jewish listener. Just like for all of my friends on December the 16th, Where you will see once again a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. That brings up a certain image, does it not? Number four, Privet Drive brings you into a certain kind of story, right? It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A tale of two cities. Charles Dickens, right? In the Jewish mind, the words in the beginning would immediately have brought to their mind the book of Genesis. It is the first words of Scripture. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God and the Word was God. So what John is communicating, and I wish this was the first book of the New Testament, is that the story of God continues. 
right? That God's promises and his faithfulness will continue to be on full display. I know that your life doesn't make sense right now, but I'm going to help you to connect the dots that this is part of God's story. This is part of all that he has done in the world and all that he will continue to do. In the beginning was the word and the word was God. This means that all of the promises of God are absolutely true. And that's especially important in moments where life doesn't make sense. That's especially important when you're trying to pick up the pieces and understand why my story is the way that it is. The incarnation shows us the faithfulness and the trustworthiness of God that all of the promises that he made throughout Scripture are absolutely true, so much so that he actually entered into the story. In the beginning says that The Word, and we'll unpack that Word in just a moment. The Word is Jesus. In the beginning, right, communicates something about Jesus. It communicates that Jesus is eternal. That Jesus has no beginning. It says that Jesus is self-existent. Right, He was before creation. And then it says that everything that was made was made through him. So creation happened through the eternal word of God who is Jesus. Now this whole story of recreation where our hearts are made new, where the gospel makes everything that it touches new, where this planet is going to be made new, that creation came through the word of God, and that recreation is going to happen through the word of God. And it's the same person it's the person of Jesus Christ. That word, word, that I don't like to use Greek very often, but it's the word logos. And it means, um, it, it actually means the self-revelation and the self-expression of God. That God himself, right, this is the good news of Advent. I know this is a little bit deep theologically, but this is why this matters. God is not hiding Right? God wants to make himself known. Yes, there are aspects of mystery, and there are times when we don't understand his hand and we don't know how to rightly interpret his story. But God took on flesh so that we would know his mercy and his grace and his saving power in the person of Jesus Christ. Creation happens through the word of God. Recreation happens through the word of God. Jesus Christ is eternal. He is infinite. And that means, right, that we have both a God who doesn't have a beginning that is uncreated that becomes part of creation. That is staggering. That the eternal God who does not need anything from creation becomes part of creation. And there must be something that's welling up in your heart right now that says, why is that? How can this actually be? Why would the eternal, uncreated God become part of creation? You find the answer in John 3.16, the most popular verse in all of the Bible, and rightly so, for God so loved the world and he so loved you that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The word 
took on flesh. The uncreated God becomes part of creation, becomes part of our story to demonstrate the faithfulness and trustworthiness of God. This means that despite the fact that you don't understand your story, that God is committed to living as a part of your story. And he wants to lift up our gaze this morning so that we actually live as a part of his story. God comes in, he redeems, he restores, he saves. The uncreated God. Now, this idea of the word, right? God is a communicating, speaking God. God God speaks through his word, but the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus Christ. Now, I've heard this book described as basic instructions before leaving earth, right? That's a really cheesy acronym, right? That this is some kind of instruction manual or practical wisdom for living. Um, Not only is that cheesy, it's wrong. Like this is God's story. This is his revelation and the ultimate revelation of this story is Jesus. If you ever read this book apart from Jesus, you have totally missed the point. This book tells us that the hero of the story, the hero of the story in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, was Jesus. The hero of the book of John in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word. The hero of the whole story and the whole book is Jesus, right? So please don't read your Bible ever apart from Jesus becoming flesh. All the promises of God is true. That's why God didn't just give us tablets from heaven, right? Because we would screw that up, right? We don't need just a book. We need a savior. We need someone that comes into the earth to represent us and to save us, right? We need a savior that's fully God and fully human, fully God so that he can save us, who is infinite, eternal, and fully human to represent us as our savior. That's the miracle of the incarnation, the eternal God becomes part of our story so that we would become part of his. So John chapter 1 compels us to see everything in light of his story. Now, without a doubt, my favorite new show on television is This Is Us. We have any This Is Us fans out there? Okay, well, the rest of you need to be converted. And we will attempt to do that right now. This week, I came across this article from the Washington Post by Russell Moore, who is a Southern Baptist ethicist, who um, actually is a very good cultural apologist. And he helps us to understand why This Is Us is now the most popular news show on television. He says, This Is Us is by far the highest performing news show of the year dominating the ratings and the adult 18 to 40 demographic. Adweek reported that the show has the most social media activity of any new show. Why does this show seem to have the drawing power that other family dramas haven't? Now I want you to begin to think about this in light of John chapter 1. The secret to This Is Us is less about ogling some other strange, dysfunctional family as it is about seeing it as our own. This is where the time hopping of the program is essential to its emotional power. Some of the adults in the show, like workaholic family man Randall, seem to have most things together, while others, like Sister Kate, 
who is caught scarfing down powdered donuts in her car at the gas station, or the brother Kevin who lost his job after melting down on his brain-dead sitcom, do not. Okay, so you have this idea of people that don't have it all together, but you don't just see their story as adults, right? It also has this time-hopping feature that you see them as children. At the same time, though we see them as children, we see that there's not that much difference between the two. We see a glimpse of the way that decisions made in private of a young couple who never planned to be the parents reverberate through the years and lives of their offspring. Now, this is the most important part. This rings true because we all tend to see our lives as a narrative. And like the characters in this series, the narrative is often murkier than we would like. Is that your experience? Some of us have had rather idyllic childhoods. Some of us grew up in the specter of violence or addiction or abuse or some kind of other awful reality. Some of us grew up wondering, as we do, as we see some of the secrets of the backstories of this series unfold, whether the family figures of our past are heroes or villains or a mixture of the two. The switching back and forth between the 1980s and 2016 reminds us that the narrative of our lives is not a straight line. Our childhood aren't just back there, but they intrude on our lives now. And as someone that has the privilege of sitting with people each and every week, that is absolutely true. Sometimes in picking at old scars and sometimes reminding us of the small mercies that have brought us safe this far. We wouldn't be who we are if not for the stories that have made us. Stories we love, stories we hate, and sometimes stories we long to peer into but leave us in mystery. So our lives are a narrative. And when we bump up against the brokenness and sinfulness of our own lives and the brokenness and sinfulness of other people against us, it leaves us grasping for mystery. What does this all mean? Why is this this way? And there's not a week that goes by that I don't sit with someone or I don't sit with myself and people are absolutely perplexed. Why is this happening to me? Why did this happen back here? Why am I experiencing so much pain right now? Now, we're going to unpack this a little bit more the reason and the answer that, and the hope that God wants to give to the mystery that we all experience of our own stories is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what does the incarnation, how does it help us unpack our stories and the story of God? The incarnation says something about us. It says both that we are simultaneously desperately needy, and infinitely valuable. So we're going to unpack that. What does it mean to be needy, and what does it mean to be valuable? First of all, we are desperately needy. The incarnation really gets at our attempts of of trying to appear competent to one another, right? We spend most of our time trying to clean ourselves up and act like we have it all together. The incarnation is God himself entering into the story to say, you know what, you don't have it all together. The incarnation is 
saying that we're needy. The incarnation says that the only way that we would ever experience salvation is for God to enter into our story. The incarnation says we are needy because we could not save ourselves and we would not save ourselves. Right? The repeated refrain of the Gospel of John is not that Jesus didn't demonstrate his greatness. It's not that he didn't demonstrate his power over demons. It's not that he didn't produce miracle after people, or miracle after miracle, where he um, healed people. The lame began to walk and the blind began to see. And you know what the religious leaders of the day said? Um, I'm going to need a little more than that. Can you show us another sign? And the repeated refrain of the Gospel of John is the reason that people don't believe in Jesus is not because it's so hard to believe or because evolution is so overwhelmingly convincing. The reason that people don't believe in the Gospel of Jesus Christ is they love darkness rather than light. The gospel of Jesus Christ says you could not and you would not choose him apart from him entering into your story and adding his spirit and drawing you to himself. That's what the incarnation says. It says you would not choose God on your own, but God loves you enough and you are valuable enough that he would enter into your story to draw you to himself. That's John chapter 6 and John chapter 12. You are valuable to God. Right? Many of us, if you've lived life long enough, you'll start to experience George Bailey syndrome. You know, it's a wonderful life. Everybody would be better off without me, right? I won't hurt any more people, I won't do any more harm. The gospel is the end of that kind of thinking, saying that you are infinitely loved and infinitely valuable, so much so that God entered into the narrative to change us. The incarnation is also the way that we're meant to see the world. Listen to this quote from N.T. Wright. He says, An essential part of our theological and missional task today is to tell this story as clearly as possible and to, uh, and to allow it to subvert other ways of telling the story to the world. So, not only is it the way that we're supposed to see us, but it's also the way that we're supposed to see the world, Right? So, here's the thing. All of us are going to travel. All of us are going to see family and friends and relatives, right? And their primary need, right? The reason that we don't get along is not because Aunt Betty doesn't have good social skills, right? The reason that we don't get along is not because Uncle Dwayne gets drunk over in the corner, right? Their primary need is not for a family gathering in those moments. Their primary need in that moment is for a Savior, right? The incarnation says, hey, this is the good news of the gospel. This is the way that you're to see the entire world. So this means that the great hope of the world is not political action, Right? The great hope of the world is not social programs, although those can be helpful. The great hope of the world that we have to begin to tell ourselves is the world is incredibly broken and sinful and desperately needs a Savior, and God has provided that Savior in Jesus Christ. That's the way to interpret the family tension that you will enter into at some point over the holidays. The great hope of the world is that God has entered the story. So, Southern Christians, now I don't want to make that as, I don't want that to be a bad word. 
my prayer is that we can redeem that word. There are two ways to live. We can live as a part of God's story. As redeemed sinners who God loves as saints. We can take his message to the world. Or we can try to fit God and shrink him down to the size of our stories. And we can live compartmentalized lives. And we can say, well, when I have time in my schedule, I'll make time for him here, here, and here, but never here. Those are the only two ways to live. We can live as a part of his story, where he's the hero, where he brings us life and joy and peace. Or we can try to fit him in a box. And I'm going to tell you this. Trying to fit Jesus in a box will destroy you. It will crumble your heart and you will feel the full weight of trying to live in this story without the power of this story which is the power of the incarnation which brings me to point number two and these next two points are going to be way faster point number two the incarnation shows us what true living is verse four in him was life and the life was the light of men So what we see in Jesus is not just a theology for when you die, right? What we see in Jesus is a better way to live, right? Every week, every day on social media, I read some kind of tweet about why millennials are leaving the church. I'm going to tell you something really quick. There have been millennials in every generation throughout the church, right? It's not like they're unique. But what they need to see and what everyone needs to see is not just a theology of dying, but a theology of living. Jesus Christ in the incarnation shows us a better way to live. It shows us the life of Jesus. If you try to live a compartmentalized life where you just worship on Sundays, your life is going to be empty and meaningless, right? That doesn't compel anyone. But what Jesus says, and he actually says some hard things. He doesn't say, hey, I want you... Um, to pray after some kind of pastor on TV or on the radio and ask Jesus into his heart. He says in John chapter 6, he's like, if you want to experience real life, this is what you have to do. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. What does that mean? It means the life of Jesus has to become your life. The death of Jesus has to become your death so that you no longer live for yourself, but you live for the sake of him who died and was raised, right? That's Christianity, not asking Jesus into your heart. So the life of Jesus is the light of man. It says this is the way to live. It means to pour out your life for other people. It means to enter into the suffering and the brokenness of other people. It means that you don't live for yourself, but you live. That's what Jesus did. He was sent by the Father. And he lived to do the will of the Father. Just think about this out loud. What if we did that together for one day as a church? We're just going to listen to God and we're going to follow and hear the heartbeat of God. What if we took this Advent season and we said, you know what? I know we have all this stuff on the schedule. But you know what? I'm hearing something else right now. I want to respond and I actually want to do the will of the Father. I don't just want to jam in a bunch of stuff into my schedule. That's what the incarnation compels us to do. Live life to the full. And this absolutely wages war and crushes the American dream. This gospel is opposed to the gospel of materialism and prosperity. And it says that life doesn't exist 
in the abundance of your possessions, Americans. It exists in living life connected to God through Jesus and the power of His Holy Spirit. That's what Christmas is about. It's not just about taking care of your soul for eternity, but living life. And that's, we're going to unpack that more next week. And then finally, we're going to need this truth. Verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Darkness will never overcome the light. This is very important. Darkness will never overcome the light. Because listen, there's going to be moments when it seems like darkness is winning. There's going to be moments in your life, and probably every week it's going to seem like darkness is winning. But I want you to just think about the life of Jesus for a moment. From American evangelical standards, Jesus was not very successful. At the end of his life, he had a handful of disciples. He gave them the gift of the Holy Spirit. Day of Pentecost, 120 people received the good news of the gospel and were filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. In American terms, that does not seem like winning, right? So there's moments when it's going to seem like we're losing and we're actually winning. But what Jesus is committed to building is a group of people that even in the midst of darkness experience the light of his salvation. The light that shines in us because of the incarnation will never be put out. And there's three groups of people I think that God wants to minister to as we close. Those that are experiencing depression. Depression is a deep darkness where you wonder how you will go on with life if you will ever be able to experience the light and the joy that exists in life ever again. The good news of this verse is that darkness will never overcome the light. Even though you feel like you may be barely hanging on, God is hanging on to you. Light will push back the darkness in your life. Also those that are disappointed, right? Maybe you had dreams, maybe you had ambitions, and those have not been realized. They could be for yourself, they could be for your family, they could be for your extended relational network. You're here and you're disappointed with life. The promise of John chapter 1 verse 5 is the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it and you just may be here and you may be discouraged like just there's there's nothing tangibly that you can put your finger on but you're discouraged in his kindness God wants you to hear the words of verse 5 the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it so we're going to enter into some dark spaces and we're going to by God's grace we're going to try to see the light of Jesus shine through us into the darkness of this city. And there's going to be moments when we need to reorient ourselves. Why is this part of our city this way? Why does this still exist in Syria right now? What are the truths that we're going to tell ourselves? The truth that we have to tell ourselves is that the darkness will not overcome the light. And Jesus' light is the life of mankind. I'm going to close with this quote from Tim Keller, and then we're going to pray. It says, Christianity says that God has been all the places that you've been. 
has been in the darkness, you are in now. So hear that, discouraged, disappointed, and depressed folks. He's been in the darkness, you are in now. And more than, and, and therefore you can trust him. You can rely on him because he knows and has the power to comfort, strengthen, and bring you through. The miracle of this story is whatever you're experiencing is not the end of your story. That God in his power, in his providence, and in his kindness enters into your darkness to shine light on your soul. So whether that's darkness that exists in your own heart, darkness that exists in the city, darkness that exists in your relationships or in your marriage, darkness will not overcome the light. So let us be people that love the light and run to the light. That's what we're going to do through communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ. Thank you that he became flesh for us. I pray that in these moments that you would wipe away the darkness of depression and discouragement and disappointment. I pray that you would help us to experience the life of Jesus for us and in our place. I pray that we transfer trust from ourselves to you. I pray that you help us begin to live as a part of your story instead of trying to fit you inside of ours. I pray that you help us to receive real life from this bread, real life from your life and real forgiveness and real joy from your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.